Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What's the relationship between lobbyists and legislators in Lansing? We seem to be learning more and more about their connections through a scandal that continues to unfold around former Speaker of the House Lee Chatfield. We talk today with Craig Mauger of the Detroit News about what his reporting is revealing and put it into the context of the rules for transparency and ethics in our state capital. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. In Lansing, our state capital, we send elected representatives there to do the people's bidding, to move agendas that reflect the priorities of our voters and our residents here in the state of Michigan. But individual citizens have really never had the same sway over lawmakers as lobbyists, professional advocates who are paid to represent various business or social interests. The relationship between those lobbyists and lawmakers is really important. In many ways, it's how things get done, not just in Lansing, but in any state capital and even in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., But those relationships can also cross the line. And that happens when powerful lobbying interests use money to essentially buy the interests, the favors of our elected officials. It's a fine line, and sometimes it's kind of murky. And here in the state of Michigan, it's clouded in part by the lack of legislation and rules around transparency and ethics in the represent in the in the legislature but lately we have been learning a lot about how these relationships work through an unfolding scandal around former speaker of the house lee chatfield who was once a rising star in the state Republican Party. Investigators for the Attorney General's office suspect that Chatfield is involved in a, quote, criminal enterprise that may involve embezzlement, bribery, tax evasion, and misconduct in office. And an awful lot of what's suspected of this former speaker has to do with his relationship with lobbyists. As leader of the lower house in Lansing, he wielded a broad range of powers to make things happen. And some people are saying that he did that for private interests that may have been doing him economic favors. That's stuff that is clearly across the line. But what exactly do we know about the misconduct that Lee Chatfield may have been indulging while he was in office? What activities are at the heart of this investigation? Did Chatfield abuse his power as a representative and as House Speaker? And even bigger question, what does this reveal about Lansing and the way things work? 
how historically significant is this particular investigation? And what does it tell us about what we might need to do with regard to transparency and ethics when it comes to the people we send to Lansing to represent the people? That's where we want to begin the conversation today. What's going on with this scandal around the former speaker? And what does it say about how things get done in our state capitol? We've got two great guests here to help us unpack all of this. Craig Mogger covers state government and politics for the Detroit News. He's a pretty frequent guest here on the show. And he's really at the forefront right now of the reporting on this story, including a piece Monday that you, if you have not read, really need to go back and take a look at. It digs very deeply into what Craig knows uh, about what's going on with the investigation into the former speaker. Uh, Craig, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Also with us is Rick Pluta. He is a senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. He is a longtime state political reporter and somebody who has an incredible amount of perspective and can bring real context to the things that are being discussed about Lee Chatfield uh, and what goes on in Lansing. Rick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Uh, yeah, good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Craig. So, uh, Craig, I'm going to start with you. Um, the story that you wrote uh, yesterday uh, really lays out a, a very intricate set of relationships, I guess, that uh, that Lee Chatfield uh, is alleged to have had with uh, some prominent lobbyists in, in Lansing. Uh, tell us what the the sum total of all of this is. What what's at stake here? Uh, what was he involved in, and and why is it of interest uh, to the attorney general's office? Yeah, totally. I mean, first off, I would say that the state house speaker in in Michigan wields enormous power. They get to set the agenda for one of the you know bodies of the legislative branch in our state government. What we found by looking into these relationships uh, for many months uh, is that Lee Chatfield received a series of personal benefits from either the lobbying firm GCSI or clients of the firm GCSI while he was in the legislature and while he was Speaker of the House. Meanwhile, while he was receiving those personal benefits, he provided repeatedly favorable treatment to pieces of legislation that GCSI was advocating for. And often these were bills that would seem to go against uh, what Lee Chatfield's political philosophy had been as a conservative Republican, uh, which is what he ran as. So we're looking at all of that, and we're looking at how this relationship impacted things that, you know, details that affect all of our lives. I mean, these things don't happen in a vacuum. Lawmakers are there working on policies that then impact all of us. So th- this has an effect on people across the state. Yeah. So so tell me a little more about the firm that uh, that is involved here, the lobbying firm. And tell me about its relationships in Lansing more broadly. Lee Chatfield is not the only uh, yeah. legislator that uh, this firm deals with. And and I, I, I'll say up front, look, there's nothing illegal or even unethical about, um, about the idea of lobbyists and uh, people who 
pay people to go to Lansing and and advocate uh, on their behalf. But this is a firm that that if you know anything about politics in Lansing and and government, uh, it's it's a familiar name. Totally, and you know, lobbying is something that is protected in our constitution as a right to you know seek a redress of grievances with your government. Uh, at the state level in Michigan, uh, there are about a dozen, maybe about 20 multi-client lobbying firms that represent an array of clients. And what happens is when these firms take on, you know, 100 clients at a time, major forces in politics, the University of Michigan, the city of Detroit, businesses like Blue Cross and Blue Shield, uh, Consumers Energy, when you put all of those together and you have one firm and this happens with a variety of businesses based in Lansing, when you have one firm representing all of them, it combines to represent uh, significant political power where lawmakers really have to think twice about going against the firm because it might not just affect their uh, ability to legislate because they went against one entity. You know, if they make the firm angry, the firm and its clients could turn against them in a variety of ways. So, I mean, what happens at the end of the day is these firms have enormous sway in Lansing. Lawmakers come and go under term limits, but these firms remain. And they look to build relationships with legislators. And in the case of Lee Chatfield, we had a situation where Speaker Chatfield had an ex- uh, extremely close relationship with members of the firm Governmental Consultant Services Incorporated. And the... The things that Chatfield is alleged to have been doing with uh, this firm, uh, be be specific about the things that yeah. raise eyebrows here, the things that go beyond the normal interactions that we see between legislators and lobbyists. Yeah, so we know that the Attorney General's office has noted a couple of things. One, there was some type of arrangement involving Lee Chatfield, his brother Aaron Chatfield, and Gary Owen, according to the allegations from the Attorney General's office, in which there were Adderall purchases made and delivered to, to Gary Owen involving Aaron Chatfield in a, an arrangement that was apparently initially set up by Lee Chatfield. This was all laid out in affidavits for search warrants that we obtained previously. We also know from our prior reporting that Lee Chatfield's siblings, two of his brothers, and a sister-in-law obtained jobs in 2020 while he was Speaker of the House with a marijuana business that was represented by GCSI. (laughs) The CEO of that business was eventually Lee Chatfield's guest of honor at a State of the State address. We've reported this previously. And our new story that uh, appeared on Monday, we've uncovered a few other things. Lee Chatfield, for six years, was renting an apartment in downtown Lansing from another GCSI client, the Automobile Dealers Association. So we know that while he was having the ability to decide whether bills affecting auto dealers would get votes in the state house, the auto dealers were effectively his landlord. So all of these things put together, and there are others, Um, involving some of the pieces of legislation that he put forward. Mm -hmm. All of these things together, including food and dining, uh, you know, he he received thousands of dollars in food purchases from GCSI and their lobbyists while he was speaker. All of these things put together paint a picture about this connection between the most powerful lawmaker in the House, (laughs) one of the most powerful lobbying firms. 
a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Craig Mogger, uh, who's a reporter for the Detroit News, and uh, Rick Pluta, who is a, a senior uh, capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. We're talking about uh, the unfolding scandal around former Speaker of the House Lee Chatfield uh, in Lansing. And we're also, of course, talking about how that fits into the context of the relationships that exist in Lansing between the people we elect to go there and pass legislation and uh, do things on our behalf uh, and people who are there uh, sort of as advocates, paid advocates uh, for for special interests in the state, lobbyists, uh, something that goes on in every legislative context. Uh, there are real questions, I think, about the lines that exist currently between uh, legislators and lobbyists, and what those lines maybe should look like. Uh, the scandal that uh, Chatfield finds himself at the center of really reminds us uh, of some things that uh, probably need tightening up. We would love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know what you are making of uh, the news as it uh, develops in this scandal uh, around Lee Chatfield. Uh, do you think this is uh, a sign that we need to really rethink the relationship in Lansing between our elected officials uh, and, and paid advocates and, and lobbyists? Uh, do you think there is more we can do as citizens here to try to hold them accountable? We did do something pretty important on November 8th, uh, passing a constitutional uh, change that will require more transparency on the part uh, of, of legislators. Are there other things that you think we ought to be thinking about doing? And what do you think legislators themselves ought to be thinking about doing? There is a running debate in Lansing about uh, how to and whether to, uh, to tighten up uh, transparency and ethics rules. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Rick Pluta, I want to bring you into the conversation here uh, just to first get your reaction to what's happening uh, in the story about uh, former Speaker Chatfield, but also to put this into some historical context. Uh, uh, you and I have been around the state a, a fair amount of time. Uh, I have a hard time kind of remembering um, something quite on this scale at this level. In other words, uh, something in the Speaker's office or in the Senate Majority Leader's office that uh, that gets to this uh, to this level of of concern uh, uh, about this relationship between uh, our elected officials and um, uh, and lobbyists, but but I'm eager to hear what your your reaction is uh, is to that and what context you see around it. Uh, sure. First of all, um, props to uh, Craig on his reporting. Um, that I mean, what we're seeing here is, I guess, simultaneously unusual um, and not uncommon mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, I mean, everybody has a lobbyist in Lansing, no matter what you do. If you're a farmer, you have at least one lobbyist. If you're a large business, you have a lobbyist. If you're a small business, you have a lobbyist. Journalists have lobbyists in Lansing. Absolutely. We have the Press Association and the Association of Broadcasters that uh, look out for things that are of uh, interest to uh, media organizations, including some uh, big lobbying for open government laws, which is what we're, uh, you know, what we're talking about here. And I just wanted to, you know, throw that 
little bit of uh, perspective in there. Mm -hmm. But what we're really focused on here is the influence of uh, multi-client firms, which isn't a recent development, although, um, you know, in my 30 years in Lansing, it's it's been on the ascent. Very often, um, the principals who are at the top of it are uh, either uh, former legislative staffers or uh, former legislators. Uh, GCSI was started by uh, two former legislators um, to be a multi uh, to be a multi-client bipartisan lobbying firm, which is that it didn't focus on issues that leaned to the right or to the left, but they took on, uh, you know, they, they, they took on uh, paying clients. Uh, Multi-client firms, basically their business is relationships mm -hmm. that uh, they will, along the way, the people who are, you know, at the top of the organization will pick out, and remember, we're a term limit state, so people aren't around, you know, all that long, that they will pick out people that they consider up and comers and uh, groom them for more responsible positions as uh, committee chairs. And then eventually, you know, obviously the golden ticket would be, uh, um, you know, House Speaker or uh, Senate Majority Leader. I mean, I, I could go on, but I think that maybe sort of sets the stage. Yeah. And and historically, um, have we seen this level of allegation, I guess, or accusation against someone as powerful as as the former speaker. Um, I mean, there, there is something about, as Craig says, you know, the power that he wielded to get things done uh, that that makes uh, his involvement with this firm um, uh, of greater concern. Yeah, I, power is a great thing or an awful thing, depending on uh, what you're doing with it. Mm -hmm. That you know, you you want legislative leadership that can be effective in moving um, difficult, sometimes uh, you know, controversial things, depending on the purpose. Is it for um, you know your your constituents? Is it for you know, the, the welfare of the state writ large, or is it to benefit, um, you know, people who are behind you and that you're, uh, you know, close to for some reason. There was a saying, um, I haven't heard it much of late, but one of the things that uh, I was informed that a good lobbyist um, will do when advising lawmakers, and remember, lobbyists are in many respects the institutional memory of uh, Lansing. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, bits of advice was the three C's that your priorities are conscience, constituents, caucus, meaning, you know, what you think is right and wrong, the people that you're representing, and then and only then are you, you know, you're focused on helping out the party that you are part of in the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the, the lobbying core, and I don't mean to, you know, indict them you know, as a group, because just like anyone, you know, there are good ones, bad ones, more mercenary, less mercenary um, um, lobbyists. Um, but they are, um, you know, also a, your lobbying firm is part of who identifies you or maybe part of who identifies you as a, uh, as a legislator. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Craig Mogger and Rick Pluta uh, about Lansing and about legislators and lobbyists. Want to get going on the phones and on social? Give us a call. Tell us what you make of this scandal unfolding around the former Speaker of the House, Lee Chatfield, what you make of the relationship between legislators and lobbyists in Lansing. Do you feel like money has too much influence over our elected officials? What would we do about that? Uh, We did have a referendum on the ballot just in November, but do we need more? And do we need legislators to take more initiative themselves? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also hashtag us on Twitter. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I got two great guests right now. Uh, Craig Mogger is a reporter for the Detroit News, covers state government and politics. He recently wrote a piece about how former state rep and Speaker of the House Lee Chatfield uh, provided a foothold in state government for lobbyists that uh, certainly raises eyebrows in the ethical context and may be raising eyebrows in a criminal context. Uh, context as well. Uh, also with us is Rick Pluta, senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. He has covered Lansing uh, for more than 30 years and uh, understands how this fits into uh, the history of this relationship between legislators and lobbyists. We want to hear from you as well, our listeners. Uh, give us a call and let us know what you make of these stories that uh, have been uh, appearing for a while now about uh, the conduct that uh, that former Speaker Chatfield is alleged to have indulged while he was uh, while he was in the legislature, also give us a sense of what you think about this relationship between legislators and lobbyists. Is it drawn properly, uh, not only by the Constitution but but also by uh, rules in the legislature? itself. Uh, Should we be thinking of other things that we require of legislators in terms of divulging their relationships with lobbyists? Should we require uh, more in terms of uh, the limitations of those relationships? Should we say some things need to be off uh, off the table, out of bounds? Uh, Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. Uh, 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Before we get to our listeners, uh, Craig, I do want to talk about this new uh, this new set of uh, rules that's going to exist because of what voters decided here uh, on November 8th, uh, Prop 2, uh, in addition to, to changing... Um, in addition to changing uh, uh, term limits, also 
is is going to require more transparency on the part of, of lawmakers. But I also want to talk about the, the debate inside the legislature itself about these things. That's been going on for some time. And there are some advocates uh, in the chambers uh, for tighter restrictions on this. But But let's first start with what voters decided a month ago. Yeah, so voters decided on November 8th to alter Michigan's term limits law to effectively give lawmakers more time in an individual chamber instead of having to uh, have shorter term limits in the House and the Senate and being able to kind of combine serving in both to equal a longer stay in Lansing. Now you can spend longer in just the House or longer in just the Senate. Uh, But with that, one of the sweeteners thrown into this proposal was a requirement that Michigan would begin having financial disclosures from lawmakers and state office holders. We have been one of two states, um, shockingly, one of only two states in the country that don't require any type of financial disclosure of a personal nature from state office holders. Mm-hmm. And what does this mean on the ground? It means that you know, if a lawmaker is invested in a large business or runs a business, uh, they don't have to report that to anyone, or if they're employed on the side in a particular by a particular entity while serving in the legislature, they don't have to report that to anyone. If they have a financial arrangement with someone, perhaps even a lobbyist, they don't have to report that to anyone. These disclosures could require lawmakers to begin disclosing these things. However, it's going to depend on how they craft the legislation to require these disclosures. And it's ultimately up to the lawmakers to set those policies. I mean, this is not necessarily by any stretch of of the imagination going to end up being a victory for transparency because it's very possible that lawmakers will set a policy that says, hey, our financial disclosures are going to be our campaign finance statements and lobbyist reports that are already available. We're just going to duplicate public information that's already out there. And and people might say, no, they're not going to do that. Yes, that's a very real possibility that they could do that under what was approved. And that shouldn't be downplayed. Yeah. Uh, Rick, uh, we've had debates in Lansing before about tighter ethics restrictions. We've had governors also promise to bring more transparency, not only to the uh, to the legislature, but also to the governor's office. Uh, uh, talk about where those things might play a role in this uh, in this debate about what what voters have decided they want to do with Prop Two. Well, I mean, one person's transparency is another person's invasion of privacy. <laughs> right, um, and that's been you know Senate Majority Leader's Mike Cherkey's position you know about this, which is that you know people have lives and interests outside the legislature that shouldn't necessarily be used as political cudgels against them, which is I, a fair point. But you're going to err on one side or the other when you are crafting policies like this. And I guess from a citizen's perspective, they might say, well, you know, if I'm the employer, if I am, you know, if if this were a service that I was um, paying for, what would I want to know about the service provider? And uh, I would think that conflicts of interest uh, would uh, would certainly be um, among them. I, I guess financial disclosure and, and business interests you know, are sort of an intriguing place to explore, I guess, because on the one hand, you don't want legislators going to Lansing and voting for things that 
you know, in order to improve the prospects for a business that they own. But a lot of lawmakers go to Lansing campaigning on the fact that they've got experience in those areas. I mean, one that, that comes to mind is uh, Tommy Brand, whose uh, family owns a well-known restaurant in uh, West Michigan, and he refers all the time to, you know, the 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 um, business side of running his restaurant and what COVID restrictions, for example, you know, meant for them. That sometimes, you know, the business is a, you know, the, the outside interest is a credential. Sometimes it's a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Again, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Call and tell us what you make of uh, this this debate about uh, the line between legislators and lobbyists in uh, Lansing. Also give us a call and uh, let us know if you even just have questions about how lobbying works in Lansing, uh, what corruption looks like, uh, you know, what's the line between uh, the sort of legal advocacy on behalf of private interests and uh, and buying or, you know, uh, inappropriately occurring favor with, with legislators. Uh, we've got two uh, really thoughtful guests who have a lot of experience uh, looking at these questions with us who will probably have good answers to those questions. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you in. Uh, let's start with Bernadette in Old Redford today. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey. Uh, what the voters want, it seems like the legislators find a way to get around. When we wanted term limits so that we didn't have legislators who had long years of influence with, you know, possible lobbyists, it turns out that what they do when they're in office is start looking for their next job. But my main point was the relationship between the lobbyists and this pipeline in northern Michigan hmm. that doesn't so much benefit Michiganders, uh, how many, you know, and what they did in the lame duck session to push it through, even though voters don't want it. Yeah. Uh, great questions, uh, Bernadette. And, and you're right. It does seem like uh, voters interests and will get confounded sometimes by by the behavior of of legislators behind some of the things that we do it's a, that's an interesting way to think of term limits which uh, we adopted almost 30 years ago and now are are trying to 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 rethink because they haven't worked the way i think that voters thought they would but that that question about um about line 5 uh, and the advocacy there i think is a really interesting one uh, uh, craig that's an issue you have followed for a long time both as a journalist and as somebody uh, who was uh, watchdogging the relationship between, you know, uh, legislators and lobbyists well before that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's just an incredible amount that we don't know about what influences these decisions. And as Rick was talking, he raised a lot of solid points about weighing transparency versus an invasion of privacy. And he mentioned an example of a restaurant owner But in that example, we all knew that he owned a restaurant. I mean, he couldn't hide from that. His name is on the front of the restaurant. He ran as a business owner for the office and was very transparent about what was driving him. And and he shared numerous stories on the House floor about how his relationship with that restaurant did impact his policy. 
decisions. And there are numerous instances where we just don't get to know with other lawmakers what is impacted in their policy decisions. Do they, when they vote on whether how solar panels should be handled by utilities and whether other utility customers should have to pick up some of the tab of those solar panel customers, do these lawmakers have solar panels at their homes on which they're making money off of? We don't know that. Do lawmakers uh, receive contributions through nonprofit accounts from some entities that could benefit from Line 5? We don't know that because our transparency laws have been set up in such a way to hide those details. I mean, these are just facts of, of where we are. And if we are not honest about these facts of what we do not know, I mean, as reporters, you know, I go through this a lot. I want to know everything. But the fact is that I don't know everything and I've got to be honest about what I don't know. And there's a lot I don't know in all of these situations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rick, what about uh, how much we know, um, you know, about about these relationships and how much we should know? Oh, I mean, and, and Craig's absolutely right. I mean, Tommy Brand is a great example of, of someone who, you know, wore his his heart in his sleeve in terms of, you know, why he was there. And we have the same with, um, you know, uh, doctors and nurses who, you know, show up in Lansing. Certainly, uh, attorneys spend a lot of time dealing with things that uh, um, address aspects of, uh, you know, of their practices. And, you know, they all everybody uh, knows who they are um you know side businesses and and i think this sort of gets into um you know the lee chaffield situation that um most multi-client lobbying firms also have reception rooms that uh, they rent to uh legislators and candidates for uh fundraising receptions mm-hmm. you know i mean that's just uh, you know one example of it and you know that can be a relationship uh benefit to an elected official and to a uh, you know to a lobbying firm that you know we don't know and I don't know that you know we necessarily need to know you know every you know snack that's uh, paid for by a lobbying firm on all night sessions of the legislature lobbying firms will also either individually or collectively pay for uh, food and snacks to be delivered uh, to the um you know, to the legislature or in the Capitol and, and, and full disclosure uh, on all night sessions, I have eaten some of those uh, snacks, <laughs> just putting that out there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways I remember, um, you know, early on, one of the things that a lobbyist, uh, you know, told me was that this place couldn't operate without lobbyists. And that is true. The question is, you know, what are the lobbyists doing and how are they managing the fact that uh, they have the ears of, uh, you know, of very important people? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Bernadette, really appreciate the call and the questions. Let's go next to Charlie in Southfield. Charlie, what's on your mind? Well, I wondered, are there any states or other countries, democracies that don't have lobbyists? And and are there any regulations on what lobbyists can and can't do? Yeah, uh, that's a, actually a great question, uh, Charlie. Uh, Craig, as you mentioned uh, earlier, look, we've, we've got a constitutional right to, to petition for a redress of grievances. It's part of the First Amendment. Uh, also protects the press, of course. Um, uh, but are there places that uh, that we don't have lobbyists in quite the same way that we have here? Uh, and and what are the rules, I guess, that, that, that govern that relationship? 
Yeah, I mean, there there are rules in Michigan that regulate what lobbyists can do. Uh, there's a broad thought that these rules were written by lobbyists in Michigan, so there is not a ton there, but they have to disclose food purchases that they make for state lawmakers or state office holders like the governor or department head over a certain amount each month. If they go over $66 in a month for a certain lawmaker, they have to report that twice a year. Uh, they have to report trips that they purchase for lawmakers uh, twice a year over certain thresholds. They have to uh, report financial transactions that they have with lawmakers over a certain threshold. You know, one of the issues is that these lobbyist policies in Michigan were written many decades ago. I think a lot of them date back to the 1970s, and they have not been updated. And what has happened with legislators since that time is there's been an immense amount of new money coming into politics, trying to impact races. And lawmakers have set up new ways in which to hide things from the public. Uh, Back in the 1970s, we didn't have a situation where a large portion of the lawmakers had a nonprofit fundraising account through which they can raise money from secret donors and not disclose what they're spending it on. So what we've seen in those, you know, the broad reports that they have to file, they're very vague and don't provide a lot of information. We see those nonprofits often being used for travel and food. So why would you take a, you know, meal from a lobbyist when that has to be disclosed and some annoying person like I will report it when you could hide it by, you know, running it through a nonprofit account? Our system of disclosures have not been set up to uh, navigate this arrangement. Other states have more, uh, you know, robust disclosure regimes or ethics policies that prevent lawmakers from having an association with these type of nonprofit accounts. Other states have financial disclosures where all trips that you receive, whether it's funded by a lobbyist or funded by a nonprofit account or funded by some entity that is not a lobbyist but very clearly seems to be doing lobbying, you have to disclose all of that, or you have to disclose all the free meals that you take from you know, entities that could be seeking to sway your vote, whether they are regulated lobbyists or not. Uh, you know, I got to state that you know, Michigan was rated 50th of 50 states for its transparency policies uh, by the Center for Public Integrity a few years ago. So our laws are different and, and generally considered weaker than what other states have. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I go yeah ahead one of the things we don't... I was going to say one of the things we don't have, for example, is what's called a revolving door law mm-hmm. that uh, requires a period of time before a an elected official can leave office and then go to work for an entity that um, that person was, you know, until recently, uh, uh, you know, voting on policies that would uh, would cover them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Rick Pluta and Craig Mogger. Great to have uh, both you here to talk about this issue. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Oh, thanks for asking. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to stay on the topic of politics, but pivot to what's going on in Washington with new leadership arriving in the House of Representatives. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit 
break today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Next year is going to highlight the beginning of pretty major changes for both parties in the House in Washington as Republicans begin the year with a slim majority. California Representative Kevin McCarthy will ascend to the position of Speaker of the House for the first time in the post uh, with one of the slimmest majorities in history. On the other side, New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries will become the first African-American to head a major political party in Congress when he takes over Democratic House leadership from Nancy Pelosi, who is one of the longest to ever serve in that capacity. So what can we expect from the House in the upcoming term? Who are Kevin McCarthy and Hakeem Jeffries? What are their principles and how will these changes affect Congress Next year. That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And joining us to talk about what's going to happen uh, in the new year in Washington is Ozzy Paybera. He is a national reporter who covers campaigns and breaking politics for The Washington Post. Ozzy, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the incoming Speaker of the House. He's not an unfamiliar face uh, in Washington, but this is his first crack at, uh, at leading the lower chamber. Uh, who is Kevin McCarthy? So um, just a, a small footnote. So Kevin McCarthy would like to be the incoming oh, Well, that's speaker. right. It's not settled yet. <laughs> that's right. But, but, out of, but out of the uh, 218 votes uh, any, any person would need to become Speaker, he has about 213. So Kevin McCarthy, a Republican congressman. He's close. <laughs> uh, he's close. But what is fascinating is that this uh, guy who's been working studiously at becoming speaker is within, a, is within grasp of it, but there is not enough votes yet, and there is enough talk um, <laughs> among people in D.C. to say, hey, if, if Representative McCarthy doesn't have the 218 might somebody else have well, it? So we might go somewhere in another direction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if so, if you are Kevin McCarthy, you are possibly measuring the drapes and also still calling your friends and seeing if they're still your friends. <laughs> That's right. So, so he is a um, he's from California, and for years he worked actually as a staffer for another Congress member, William Thomas. Uh, he was there for uh, he was on that staff for over a decade before getting elected to the California State Assembly. Um, he spent a few years there, rose up to become minority leader, and then in 2006 gets elected to the Congress. So he's been in Congress for enough time to sort of understand the place, how it operates. Um, there's reports out there that he was a big fan of Trump, uh, read Art of the Deal, and sort of got acquainted with um, with the future president sort of before he formally came into to politics. So, so there's been some connection there. Now, what McCarthy, what people have seen McCarthy do is cobble together enough um, House members to win a majority, a a bare majority. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people were thinking they were going to do a lot better than they did in the midterms. But Kevin McCarthy sort of went around the country supporting the Republican nominees this midterms. Now, whether you were a little bit more of a progressive with more lenient views on abortion over in the Northeast, or a little bit more hardline uh, conservatives focused on immigration down along the border. Kevin McCarthy was traveling the country, championing and carrying the banner for Republicans, and just got them across the finish line 
with enough votes to to declare the majority. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk a little about Hakeem Jeffries, sure. who is uh, is making history by uh, ascending yeah. to leadership uh, in the so, House. Who is he? He is from Brooklyn. He is a lawyer who, when he first tried to run for office, uh, he he ran against an, uh, an incumbent in Brooklyn for a state assembly seat, lost. And the political powers at the time said, we don't like this guy coming in trying to beat one of our guys. And they threw, they redrew the district to exclude Hakeem Jeffries' house at the time. So he got a very early taste of what political power can mean. <laughs> of how it works, uh, right? <laughs> exactly. A, a few years later, he ends up winning that seat. His colleagues immediately see that he's a smart, articulate, hardworking guy, and they see he has a lot of potential. He then runs for a congressional seat in his area. A longtime Congress member sees the challenge, decides to retire. And then for that seat, just as he's about to, to clinch it, he gets challenged by a council member who, uh, Councilman Charles Barron, a uh, longtime member of the Black Panther Party, just an outspoken advocate with, with a track record of, of getting a lot of attention for saying strong things. And, the per- and Hakeem Jeffries, who had once been the sort of outsider insurgent, quickly becomes the person that the establishment needs to rally around in order to avoid and prevent this other guy from winning. So Hakeem Jeffries wins that congressional race and instantly starts building connections with Democratic Party leaders because of this uh, unique race that he was in. He gets to Washington, and in 2018, something amazing happens. Joe Crowley, a congressman from a neighboring district, from a nearby district, loses to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the the rising Mm -hmm. um, progressive member. What that does is it clears the lane for Hakeem Jeffries. The person AOC had beaten had long been considered uh, a future contender for the speaker. He's gone. That leaves Hakeem Jeffries, young, safe Democratic district, very smart, uh, and can balance uh, progressive uh, ideas and values with sort of friendly relations and smart uh, establishment politics. That's who Hakeem Jeffries is. Yeah. And uh, a reminder to our listeners, he is the brother of Hassan Kwame Jeffries, who is uh, a history professor who specializes in civil rights and the Black Power Movement at Ohio State University and has been a guest here on Detroit Today several times talking about things. So, uh, But let's talk about what's going to happen when, uh, presumably, uh, we, get a, we get leadership on both sides in the House in January. It will be, it will be a new day. Nancy Pelosi will not be... Th- the speaker for the, the first time in, in, in a bit, and uh, Republicans will have control again. Uh, what's that going to look like? Uh, there's going to be challenges on both sides. I, for speaker, for potentially Speaker McCarthy, uh, whenever you have a small majority, the smaller your majority, the more uh, potential disruptive power each member has. Um, people like Representative Matt Gates in Florida, Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, each of these um, are strong voices who say things like, let's investigate uh, President Biden. Let's look at what, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop and things like that. So mm-hmm. Kevin McCarthy is very quickly going to have to figure out how to deliver uh, the functions of government, passing budgets, getting bills done, paying for the things that government does, with this idea that the activist base of the Republican Party wants to sort of exact revenge on what they saw as unfair investigations uh, attacking their members, and they sort of feel it's like their opportunity to sort of use that power more justly going the other direction. McCarthy's going to have to balance how do you govern and get things done 
with members who sort of want to go and potentially go in another direction. He's already promised uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene that he will put her on committees, and she's talking about uh, launching investigations. So he's going to manage how to go from railing against the system to sort of uh, leading the system. Hakeem Jeffries uh, potentially is going to have to figure out um, what to do with the activist base in his party, the, a- the AOCs, the-, the Progressive Caucus, who may want to take a-, a stronger stance while figuring out when and where to work with Republicans who are in the majority. Do they pass criminal justice reform? Do they pass infrastructure legislation? I remember infrastructure week was something we were talking about for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So when and where to pick your fight is going to be something uh, each side is going to have to figure out. Yeah. Uh, and if you're the White House, uh, mm-hmm. you've still got significant parts of your agenda that you hadn't been able to get through in the last two years with the control of both houses of Congress. The, the math gets harder here. But but I, I want to ask about mm-hmm. he, here in Michigan, of course, we have uh, kind of the opposite thing happening where mm-hmm. Democrats will have control for the first time in 40 years, in fact, yep. uh, of, of the entire legislature and the governor's office. And there's still talk, though, of reaching across the aisle. Uh, the, the incoming speaker of the House here is somebody who has great relationships with several Republicans. And he mm-hmm. says, look, uh, maybe my majority comes together sometimes uh, with them in the fold. Is there any possibility of that kind of thing happening in Washington? Absolutely. Um, there are longtime members on both sides of the aisle who understand that when they go back to their districts, a lot of their constituents, a lot of people who just turn on the TV, see their paychecks not rising as high as the price of the pump, they want to see how Washington affects their lives on a daily basis. And Democrats often argue that the role of government is to play a more active role, and Republicans often are in the position of saying less government uh, yields a greater good. But both sides are going to have to figure out when to use the power of government to step in. There are um, issues about um, student debt relief that's being weighed, in the co- that's being weighed out in the courts, that's also going to have to be mm-hmm. uh, debated. And we're also going to see a presidential campaign heating up more intensely. And that always um, can throw the machinations in Washington uh, a, a little sideways. But there are moments where, sorry, I, if, if I can back up, yeah. there is a theory of governing that says the majority of the majority is really what drives the ship. Mm-hmm. So if McCarthy wants to govern 51-49, he really has to win over a wide swath of his somewhat uh, diverse caucus. Or he can cut deals with Hakeem Jeffries and potentially face an uprising from like the Freedom Caucus and the more hardline members. So he's going to have to decide when to stick with his base and when to reach across the aisle. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Ozzy Pebera of the Washington Post. Uh, really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow and we're going to talk about the laboratories of democracy idea and whether states still adopt good policy ideas from their neighbors anymore or if we're too polarized for that to be happening in our country. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, 
and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.